you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of 1 Peter. Continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter, being in chapter 3 this morning, verses 13 through 17. Picking up where we left off, uh, where we've been in 1 Peter, really, I think, uh, probably about two months or so now at this point. Uh, But 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 17. Those should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to get there in time. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 says this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Charles, or more commonly Chuck Colson, was special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was one of the masterminds behind the Watergate scandal, which would lead to Nixon's resignation eventually, as well as several other plots, really, that he was behind. Uh, He went to prison for seven months for obstruction of justice, And he came out a changed man, a new man, a Christian man. He devoted the rest of his life to preaching the gospel. But what I really know him from, what I remember him from, is one quote, one real sermon in particular. He said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I've always liked that. I think it's a really compelling point. I think it's a good argument. It's even a good way for him to be able to acknowledge his past, who he was, who he has been through to be able to know who he is now. But what he's doing here, really, the point that he's making, he's defending the truth of the resurrection. He's saying that we can believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened because the disciples never changed their story. They were willing to suffer and die because of what they believed. And he's saying you don't do that if you don't actually believe those things. You don't do that for a lie, for a hoax. And it's even more incredible because these men, these apostles, they were just ordinary men, right? They were, if anything, lesser, the lower castes of society, people who you wouldn't have expected to be able to hold up under that kind of pressure. But the men behind Watergate, they were supposedly the most powerful, the most politically savvy, the smartest guys in the room, supposedly. And they couldn't keep that lie for three weeks. But somehow the disciples held it until death. It's a good point, I think. It's a good defense, really, for the hope that we have in the resurrection, that we can believe that it is true. This argument, ones like it, are often called apologetics, something that we'll talk about a lot today in our text, because today's verses are all about how we defend the hope that we have in the gospel. So in this text today, what we're going to see are three ways we defend our hope in the gospel. 
We'll see three ways we defend our hope in the gospel from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. And the first way that we defend our hope in the gospel from today's passage is that we defend the gospel by our endurance. We defend our hope in that gospel by our endurance. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Last week, we saw that the Christian life is blessed even as it endures, even as it experiences suffering. It's still a blessing to us. It's still a blessing that we have, that we're able to give, that we're able to experience by having it. It's a theme that Peter has hit on several times and one he's going to repeat in today's verses. But verse 13 acknowledges that this really shouldn't be how it's supposed to work, right? The answer to his question should be no one. That there is no one to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But the evidence from the rest of the book tells us that in this world, that is rarely the answer to that question. But a good zeal, if you're zealous for what is good, that should remove harm. Being zealous, being adamantly about, being passionate in the pursuit of those things that we know, that we experience, that we can see are good, that should result in no one being there to harm you. Peter's pointing to the way the world should work and the way it will work one day when all things are restored, when all things are redeemed. His book may often feel like it's gloom and doom, but I think that's really only because Peter is acknowledging reality for us as Christians. It's not because he has a negative outlook, a negative disposition. It's not because he's trying to get us down as, he, as we read this book. It's that he is actually trying to prepare us for the reality of what we're going to experience. Yeah, a good zeal should remove harm, though it rarely does. Good intentions, good work, good passions, they don't require that everything goes our way. They don't always give us an immediate payoff. But we are blessed even in our suffering all the same. Even in the moments when a good zeal actually leads to harm. Even if we should suffer for righteousness sake, Peter says, we'll still be blessed. Peter's taking up the same idea that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. When he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, there is a blessing for you even in the midst of your suffering and persecution. Even if you don't see it yet. The kingdom of heaven is, present tense, theirs, those who suffer for righteousness' sake. You are, present tense, blessed when others revile you and persecute you on Christ's account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is, present tense, great. When Jesus said this, he's saying those things are true already for you when you experience them. Those blessings are held for you in heaven, in the kingdom of God, in those moments. They're real. They're there. You just may not see them yet. You may not experience them yet. But someday you will. So take heart. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, even if you did it perfectly and it did not matter, 
because you are and will be blessed. Okay, Peter doesn't give this encouragement in vain to us. He's not saying this. The Bible isn't saying this because this kind of suffering is just never going to happen. He's not saying, theoretically, if you were to experience it, then this would be true. He's saying it because it is true for them, that they are experiencing these things, that we will experience these things. He's saying this because you can expect it to happen. And I think in the last few hundred years in the West, I think we forgot that suffering and persecution are actually common elements in the Christian life. It's a feature of the Christian life. It is the normal, everyday Christian life is suffering and persecution for your faith. We are going to experience it. But when we do, we should know that we are blessed already in those moments. In the context of today's passage, this persecution, our suffering and our endurance through it, that's actually part of how we defend the gospel. It's part of how we defend the hope we have in the gospel. It's how we show to the people around us that we actually believe what we say we believe, even to the point of death. Paul spoke to this same idea in Philippians 1.16. He said, the latter, those who preach the gospel out of goodwill, from verse 15, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. You see, Paul, when he wrote those words, was in prison. He was suffering persecution for spreading the gospel. And what he's saying here in verse 16 is that he was put in jail in here for the defense of the gospel. Not just so that he could preach to his guards, which he did. Not just so he could make a formal declaration of the gospel to the authorities whenever he was put on trial, which he did. I mean, he could have done those things without having to go to prison. He could have done those things without having to go to jail, right? Evidently, though, in Paul's mind, in in that verse in Philippians... He's in jail specifically because him being there defends the gospel. Him enduring that kind of punishment, persevering through that kind of trial and persecution, that's how he defends the gospel. When a Christian suffers for righteousness' sake, that in itself is a defense of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteous one suffering unjustly so that the unrighteous might come to faith, that is the gospel. That's what Christ did for us in the gospel. So now when we follow him in this, it's a picture. It's a defense of what he's already done. So we defend the gospel. We defend our hope in it by our endurance. We have no need to fear even as we endure. Have no need to fear of them. Have no fear like they have, nor be troubled. You're already blessed. You already have that blessing for you in heaven. The suffering that you are experiencing is part of how you show the world the truth of the gospel. So there's nothing to fear now as you endure that suffering, as you endure that pain. There's no need to be troubled by it. Because as you endure it, you are defending the gospel. Already, in those moments. So that's one way that we defend the gospel. But another way that we're able to do that is by our reasoning. That's the second way we defend the gospel from today's text. We defend our hope in the gospel by our reasoning. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect. This verse, that sentence I just read, that's the central text. It's the clearest theme passage for an entire realm of Christian thought and study that's called apologetics. And that term, apologetics, comes from the Greek word apologia, which in this verse is what you see wherever you see it translated defense, make a defense. It's not apologizing for the faith in the way that we think of it. You're saying you're sorry. You're explaining what you did wrong or the reasoning that led you to the wrong action. To make a defense of the faith here, to argue in an apologetic realm, is to defend the faith. It's to show why it's true. It's to give reasons in support of it. That's what apologetics does. And I don't want to turn this into a lecture. Certainly not on apologetics, because that is not my field. Uh, But I do want to say this. Sometimes I think we as Christians can get intimidated by worldly arguments. We hear someone talk about science or philosophy or morality. And at the end of that, that whole presentation, they say, and therefore God doesn't exist. Or maybe, and therefore God isn't worth worshiping if he exists. He shouldn't be believed. We watch videos, we see movies or something, and it makes us doubt a little bit. We start thinking, I haven't heard that before. What if that's true instead of what I believe? How do, how do I show, how do I prove that that's not true, that what I believe is true? That little seed of doubt just starts to grow in our minds because we aren't super confident in what we already believe. We don't know what to do with this information. But let me just assure you that there is a whole field of scholarly Christianity, guys smarter than you and me put together, who have devoted themselves to answering these kind of questions. We don't have to be afraid of these kind of debates or these kind of topics. Most of these questions, the specifics of them, have actually had answers for centuries. It's just that you or the guy on YouTube, he doesn't know the answer to those things. You don't know the answer to those things. But they're around. Christians have been defending our faith since the beginning. And we can go toe-to-toe with any intellectual argument in existence. Not because we're so smart, but because what we believe is actually true. It is the truth. It can hold up to anything that you might be able to throw at it. The truth always holds up. But I want you to notice that even in this place, even in this verse, this text, this time, the central piece of Christian apologetics, the ones that people get hyped up about, even here, our defense doesn't actually begin in the mind. It begins in the heart. Okay, we get to the mind. We'll get there in a second. It's there. We aren't off the hook in that area. But actually, the best apologist, the best defender of the faith, isn't the smartest guy in the room. The best apologist is the one who honors Christ the Lord as holy in his heart, as the verse says. You have to begin with the heart to get to the mind. A mind without the heart, that's nothing, right? And we've seen examples of this. We've seen people who claim to be great apologists, people who have put forward great arguments, some people that we've known, that we've read books from, that we've listened to, to sermons from, who then we find out that the heart is wrong, and now it's like all the words don't matter anymore, right? If the heart isn't there, what difference does it make if the mind is there? 
Our faith is not a series of syllogisms that arrives at therefore the gospel. It's a new faith with a new heart that comes from it. So if your heart is here in this place, as verse 15 talks about, then you are already ready to defend your faith, whether you know all the ins and outs of all the arguments or not, whether you can give the full Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God or not. You don't have to be able to do that to still be able to defend your faith because it begins in the heart. You are absolutely smart enough to be a Christian. You know why? Because there is no intellectual hurdle that you have to cross to come to saving faith. There's no ACT score that you have to get. But more than that, you should also know, you should recognize and be able to experience that you are also smart enough to defend your faith. Because brains isn't the first thing required. It's a new heart. It's a soft heart. A Christian heart. A heart which loves Jesus and honors him as the Holy Lord. So your defense of the gospel, even a reasoned defense, it actually begins in the heart. But it does require preparation. Always being prepared to make a defense. Like Peter was the first Boy Scout. He's saying that you should never be caught off guard by the opportunity to defend your faith. He's saying you should always be ready. You should always have prepared beforehand for that chance, for that opportunity. And that defense is certainly in the mind. I'll talk about that in a second. But I think even that preparation has to happen in the heart. You have to be prepared in your disposition, in your outlook. You have to be looking for the opportunity to present the gospel and to defend the faith. About a month ago, uh, I set up a table to represent our church on campus at UCA for a welcome week activity. I was trying to connect with incoming freshmen to be able to give them some information about our church at Pleasant Grove so that they might be able to come, they might be able to visit, to be able to join us, to be discipled in the faith, all of those things. And while I was there, an international student from Japan walked up and in pretty broken English, where I think I was able to put together what he was saying, what I think he said was, hello? I'm from Japan. We don't have a lot of religions there. So I'm curious about what Christians believe because I don't know what to believe. Can you tell me what to believe? Okay, that was hello. He walked up and said those things first. I I don't think I got his name. I think that's how he said hello to me. Okay, that's pretty rare, right? We don't usually get that. Usually we have to be on the outlook for it. We have to be looking for an opportunity to be able to say what we believe and why we believe it. It's incredibly rare that someone says, hi, I'm a blank slate, what should I believe? But in that moment, I did my best to try to share the gospel with him. I said, well, I think you should believe the truth. I think you should believe that there is a loving God who created all things. And he created all things good. And when he made it, it was good. But then through our sin, sin entered the world and with it death. But God, because of his love for us, didn't allow us to stay in our sin and death because he is holy. So he couldn't actually be with us if we remained in our sin and death. But because he loved us, he wouldn't let us stay there. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect that we couldn't be to live the perfect life that we couldn't live without sin, not deserving of death. 
So then remember, he lived that perfect life. He earned his righteousness for us. And then he died for us. He died in our place because of our sin, we deserve to die. But now, because of who Christ is and what he's done, he died for us. He took the penalty of our sin on himself. But then that's not the end of the story either. He didn't just take my sin. He also rose from the grave to give me life. After three days, he came back to life. And with it, he defeated sin and death. So that now, us, we, can be restored to God. We can be redeemed to God. And all things can be as he designed them to be. The perfect communion that we, could, that we were supposed to experience with God, we now can. So I just laid that out. Said, this is what you should believe. Believe those things. And just as quickly as he had appeared, he was gone. He said, okay, and turned around and left. And I have no idea where he's at right now. I don't know if he understood what I was saying. I don't know. I tried. I I tried to repeat some things, to use some smaller words to go through it. But I don't think I did it perfectly. I have no idea where he's at. And I had prepared beforehand. I knew if someone asked me what's the gospel, that's what I'm going to say. What should I believe? The gospel. What is the gospel? It's this. I had prepared beforehand. In a certain sense, I've been preparing my whole life to be able to answer that question. That's what I do, right? If I didn't have an answer for that question, you guys should have hired somebody else. I had prepared beforehand to know what is the gospel so that I could tell him what that gospel is. But if I had never thought about sharing my faith before that day, if I had never thought about what I believed to the point that I could explain it to someone else, I don't think I would have given him an answer anywhere close to that. But can I be honest with you? I honestly don't think that that is a story about me nailing it. Because I was prepared intellectually, right? I knew the right answer. What should I believe the gospel? What is the gospel? This, these facts, this message. But I don't think I was really prepared in the heart. You know how I know that? When he asked his question, the first thing that I thought in my mind, the first feeling that I had was a fight or flight reflex to flight, to run. I, my face got red. I was sweating. I was stammering. I could barely get the words out as I was talking to him. I was embarrassed. And in the back of my head, the whole time, I was thinking, he doesn't understand a word I'm saying. He doesn't even know English well enough to know the words that I'm saying, much less the message of what I'm saying. There's no way that he is going to respond to the gospel at the end of this. So in reality, I wasn't prepared. Okay, I knew the right answer. I I think I gave him the right answer. And I know that God is sovereign enough to save that student in spite of my terrible presentation. But even though I knew the right answer, I wasn't ready to give it. You see, our preparation, our defense of the gospel, our presentation of it, it starts in the heart. It starts with us before it gets to the head. And I'm not giving this to you as an excuse someday so that whenever someone asks you the same question, you can say, well, my heart's not prepared, I'm not in this, and then you can just bail. 
No, you, you can't let that opportunity pass. You defend your faith in the gospel when the opportunity arrives. But you get your heart ready now. You get prepared now. It starts in the heart, but I don't think it ends there. If you're going to be prepared to make a defense, then you have to know the defense that you're going to make. You have to have thought about it beforehand. You have to have reasoned through your beliefs beforehand. A simple childlike faith, that is absolutely enough to save, but a simple faith that never thinks, that never grows, that never knows what it believes, I don't think that's what we're called to. You don't get to say that apologetics doesn't matter because you're just not that kind of guy. You don't get to say that theology doesn't matter because it's not where you're gifted. If you believe anything, and I think that you do, you have to understand what you believe, not only enough to actually you know, believe it, but to defend it. Your defense requires preparation. And then, once you're prepared, a defense actually has to be made from this verse. Be prepared to make a defense. It's an action that you take. You don't just have the defense ready. You make it. You don't just have it in your back pocket like it's a party trick that just never gets used. You're just waiting for someone to say something about cards so you can pull it out and do your magic. Okay, the the guy who brings a guitar to every party that he goes, he brings it everywhere. And then he is prepared to use it. He hears a lull in the conversation and he starts strumming those chords. He doesn't just have the guitar. He makes the guitar happen in the group. Just like you, whenever you see your opportunity, you start strumming those gospel chords. You start making your defense so that they might listen, so that they might hear, so that they might be saved. And you're never going to nail it. You're never going to finish sharing the faith with someone. You're never going to finish defending that there is a creator or telling them why he's good. You're never going to get through that and think, man, I wish somebody had filmed that. That really would have been a good video. People would have just spread that far and wide because I absolutely nailed that. That's never going to happen. It's never even going to come close to happening. But you have to make the defense you've got when the moment comes. Okay, I wish that I would have done better with that student. I wish I wouldn't have let him walk away. I wish I would have called him to faith and repentance right there. Not just saying, these are the facts of what the gospel is, but you can believe in these things and you can be saved by them right now. I wish I would have done that. And I don't get a do-over there. But I did share the gospel. I defended my hope. And next time, I'll do it again, but hopefully better. So what we do is we open our mouths and defend what we believed, even if we are reviled for it. We make the defense at the given opportunity. We give the reason we've got, whatever that is, when the chance comes. But notice that there should be a reason to this, right? We don't just throw our beliefs out there and expect everyone to respect them just because we believe them, all right? We're not flat earthers. We don't identify as mermaids. Our stuff has to make sense. We can't just say stuff and assume everybody else is just going to be right there with us. We give reasons. We explain. We argue. 
We use logic and scripture and experience. We make a compelling case for our beliefs, compelling them to be saved through the gospel. Okay, the head is involved here. But the defense that we make has to be grounded in hope. Okay, there's passion behind this. What they're doing is they're asking a reason for the hope that we have. They're not asking me for a doctoral dissertation on the concept of truth. They want to know what we believe and why we believe it. In this scenario, evidently, from 1 Peter, the Christian's beliefs are so important to them that they are so different from the non-believer that he has to ask about it. And that difference, I think, is the hope that we have. We're supposed to be a people of evident hope. We believe. And that changes us. We look differently. We act differently. We have a better, a brighter outlook on our lives, even through suffering, than the one who doesn't believe like we do. So then, we make a defense of our hope in hope. You see, my problem with that student was that I didn't have hope that God would save him in that moment. I didn't have hope that he was going to be able to understand the content of what I was saying, that he might be able to come to saving faith. So shame on me in that moment. We are people who keep moving forward, who keep making our defense in hope every time. Because we know that our hope is placed in him who is faithful every time. And I think whenever we are able to actually do that, it causes us to act with gentleness and respect toward those we're talking to. Yet do it with all gentleness and respect. Okay, we start in the heart, but we don't let our zeal turn into a red-faced rage against the person we're talking to about our faith. We're prepared, but we don't scoff at the unprepared. We reason, but our goal isn't to try to make anyone feel stupid in their ignorance. We aren't puffed up in our knowledge and arguments. We aren't carrying an air of superiority around with us just because we know the secrets of the universe and all these other idiots just don't understand. We don't do that. We make a defense, and we do it in gentleness and respect. And I think this message, this idea is needed, especially for those of us who get super into this idea of defending the faith. If you hear this and you go, great, sign me up. I want to do it. Let's go. Fill me. I'll do it. It's perfect. I've got all these arguments already ready to go. Then you especially need to hear this part. Because I think a lot of people think theologians are smug until they meet an apologist. The meanest, the rudest guys that I ever met in seminary, that I have ever met in any of my doctoral classes, they were all really into apologetics. That was their thing. For guys who were so smart, you think they would read at least to the end of this one verse. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's how we have to make our defense, with gentleness and respect. You know, kind of the opposite of how I just spoke about these apologists. Gentleness and respect. We can't deride them. We can't hate them. We can't act better than them. We just make our reasoned defense in hope, and we let God work out that person's heart. But we do defend the gospel by our reasoning, with our reasons. The final way we defend the gospel today is by our good conduct. We defend the gospel by our good conduct. Look at those last two verses. 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, we have to have a good conscience. Your mind, as you're presenting the gospel to them, can't be plagued by all the lies and sins and behaviors that you're trying to hide. There is no way to be engaged in the heart and the mind and also have a guilty conscience. So that means you have to be a Christian and you also have to act like one. You have to know that if you are in him, all of your sins have been placed on him so that now you are righteous in him. There's no guilt still on your conscience. Not in where it matters. Not in the courts of God. But you also have to act out your faith in your life so that you aren't thinking of that sin that's plaguing you the whole time. That you're actively killing it, putting it to death. A good conscience is the fruit of good behavior. He's saying that you should have a good conscience because that's what happens when you live how you're supposed to live, right? And you living how you're supposed to live is how the gospel is defended in your life. It's by your good behavior, your good conduct, that the gospel is defended. You see, without the good conduct part, there's actually no point in your suffering. If the people who are reviling you are reviling you for what you actually did for your evil, then that's really just justice, right? There's no greater point to be made. There's no example given. There's no defense made of the gospel in that moment. That's just how the world's kind of supposed to work. Now, it's supposed to be that when you are slandered, and you will be, those who revile your behavior, which is actually good in Christ, because of Christ, those who revile that behavior may be put to shame. They need to be shown as obviously in the wrong because their accusations are coming against someone who is so honorable in their conduct that anyone looking at the scenario in reason would just know, man, they're way off. They should be put to shame by how shameful they have to be to have the audacity to say something against someone with conduct like yours. Okay, this idea that he's presenting here is kind of the the flip side of what Peter said earlier in 1 Peter 2 verse 12. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, in both cases, your conduct has to be honorable. Your behavior has to be good. But whereas some will see that behavior and glorify God because of it, others will see that same behavior and be put to shame because of their reviling. Now, perhaps that shame may lead them to repentance or maybe the day of their shame is the day when that shame becomes final and they're judged for their sin. But your good conduct, that has to be consistent regardless of their results. You see, we can't be utilitarian in our defense. By that I mean we can't always focus on the results we can see and use that as a test for whether we did what we were supposed to do or not. In both those verses, we have good and honorable conduct among the Gentiles, among the non-believers, but the results appear to be the opposite. So we have to trust the will of God in these things. We have to trust the will of God with our defense of the gospel. I think that's Peter's point in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The result of suffering may come about whether you live well or poorly, whether you are practicing good or evil. But if that's God's will for you either way, 
then it's better to endure for the good that you've done, for doing good with a good conscience, than it would be for doing evil. Suffering for doing good, that shows that we really believe what we claim to believe. And as Peter's going to show us next week, it's through the suffering of one who was good that we came to faith in the first place. It was through the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our sins were forgiven. So when we suffer for doing good, we're simply following in his steps. We might actually be the means through which someone else is able to come to faith. I think that's why it's so important that we defend our hope in the gospel. We defend it by our endurance through suffering so that they might see the one who endured through suffering for them. We defend it by our reasoning so that they might know that the faith we proclaim is worth believing in. And we defend it by our good conduct so that they might know that what we believe really has the power to change people because it changed us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the gift of your gospel. It needs no defense. You need no defense. Yet you allow us to defend you. Even people like us. Help for us to do that. To make a defense for the reason. For the hope that we have. Help us to do that in our lives by our good conduct. Help us to do that by our endurance. That even when we suffer, even when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we can know that we are following the footsteps of Christ and that we are presenting a defense for the hope that we have. That we're sharing the gospel with them, even without words, by our conduct. But then, God, let us also use words. Let us also make a defense. Give the reasons. Let us do that with gentleness and respect, but let us do that as boldly as we can, as truthfully as we can. Your gospel has saved us. So now let us live our lives defending it, showing it to be true, and glorifying you because of it. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.